0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network: Science, Technology, and Society podcast. Today, we're with David Niemer for his new book, Technology of the Oppressed, from MIT Press. Uh, David Niemer is an assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies and in the Latin American Studies program at the University of Virginia. He's also a faculty associate at at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center and Princeton University's Brazil Lab. His research and teaching interests cover the intersection of STS, anthropology of technology, and ICT for development, and human-computer interaction. Technology the Oppressed is his new book, and we're here to talk about it today. So, hi, David. How are you? Hi, Austin. I'm good.
1: How are you? Thanks for I, having me.
0: I'm, I'm great. Thanks. Thank you for coming. This book is sort of central in, I think, any STS wheelhouse. And um, it's it's so wonderful to to be able
1: to talk about it today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, you know, why don't, we, why don't we get started a little bit and just kind of, you know, where did this project come from? Why, why Brazil? Why, why Brazilian uh, favelas? What's, what, what was the draw?
1: Yeah, so uh, this project started in 2012. So this year, which is the year that the, the book got published, marks the 10th year anniversary of this project. Uh, you know, it started as my uh, PhD dissertation project. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil, from Victoria. That's where I did my ethnography, uh, and I've always been intrigued and motivated to understand the social inequalities that al- always pertain in my country and in my city, which is something that we're not really taught in school how to understand or how to approach. It's it's a given, and uh, the same way that social inequalities are unfair, there's certain given. Is also unfair, so it was also a way to understand myself in that space, but also understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I my my bachelors uh, I did two bachelors. I did one in in organizational studies in the business school, and also in computer science. And during my uh, computer science um, bachelors, I did engage in programs related to digital inclusion where we would set up um, computer labs in marginalized areas to kind of uh, promote computing lessons to, to those who didn't have access to computers or internet. Um, so that really um, sparked my interest in understanding how technology I- impacted the, you know, the lives of the, the marginalized and how the marginalized also impact the lives of computing. So that interest always stayed with me. Um, I went off to Germany to do my master's and in computer science as well. But over there, I completely distanced myself from this uh, digital inclusion, computing for you know social good, just because the master's had a completely different orientation, which was in software engineering. By the end of my master's, I ended up hating computer science, not wanting to code a single line of code again. But I still wanted to stay in the realm of technology. In other words, to study technology. It wasn't until I found a PhD program at Indiana University, um, Computing Culture and Society, that I thought, okay, this is a chance for me to you know, bring my, my background, uh, engage in more in, with the social sciences to sort of understand how technology and society and culture um, relate to each other.
0: What a wonderful... Um you know, story as, as, um, as, as myself, I'm someone from, um, computer science who's, who's been leaning into, um, you know, more STS studies. So, um, you know, so it's a, it's a wonderful, a wonderful story that I imagine other computer scientists, maybe the audience might be getting some ideas from, uh, <laughs> so why, why, why don't you set the stage, um, um, for us, for those of us who are not familiar with sort of the favelas in Brazil, you know, can you describe it a little bit? What, you know, what's it like just as a, as a
1: place? Yes. Uh, Favelas are um, marginalized areas where uh, folks facing poverty um, find shelter or find their home. Um, um, They're often referred to as urban slums, but they're different from slums in a way that they have their own way of life. You know, slums come um, from a perspective or an understanding of how marginalized areas in India, for example, work. But favelas have their own way, their own organization, their own dynamics, which differ themselves from slums. Uh, some people call it shanty towns, which sometimes can also work. But favelas is just the original and uh, let's say the indigenous name of those areas. Um, these areas sometimes are in, in the outskirts of the cities, but sometimes it's in the city, like the favelas that I did my field work on at. Um, they were in the center, and I make I emphasize that in the book just to show that marginalization doesn't have doesn't happen doesn't have to happen at the margins because usually that's the excuse, right? Oh, it's in the margins; it's too far away; it's hard to reach. But that uh, the, the favelas were in the city in the center, city center, and yet the city as a social organization still managed to exclude this the that area from participating in cities' activities, having access to infrastructure. Um, The favelas are known to host, for example, Samba schools, uh, where people, where the community get together to, you know, uh, design clothes and and floats. So when Carnival comes, you know, they have their representation in in the Samba school, which is really cool. In the favela that I did my fieldwork, I also had one, um, although the most famous ones are in Rio de Janeiro, the same way that the most famous favelas are in Rio de Janeiro because of the movies and because it's Rio de Janeiro, it's really well known. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it in Victoria, not only because as it's my hometown, but also to bring light to areas that are overseen um, in the in the literature. So there's basically no studies done in Victoria, for example, and even in those spaces that are you know marginalized, not only physically, socially, but also uh, in the literature.
0: Yeah, that's, you know, interesting um, even to think quickly, I mean, about the problem of kind of marginalizing marginalized groups sometimes, because in fact, it it almost makes it seem like in our language, we're talking about some small, um, small group. But but in reality, a lot of times these are actually very, very large settlements um, like that constitute entire city centers or or entire surrounding areas of cities. Um, and it's, it's not a small number of people we're actually talking about.
1: No. And, and these are the, these are the backbone and these people, they provide the backbone of the social structure of the country. You know, these people are, are the, the labor force. They are the ones, uh, who provide all kinds of, uh, labor to the city. Those are the people that actually make the city work in the city. You know, and the counterpart uh, comes back and doesn't allow them to participate fully. Um, it doesn't recognize them as fully citizens the same way that folks that live in, in richer neighborhoods are considered. Um, one thing that I talk in the book is how uh, infrastructure, they, uh, it, it mediates citizenship, meaning that for you to be part of a city most of the time, uh, you need to be part of, a, of, of an infrastructure when you're denied that right to become part of an infrastructure, it means that the city no longer wants you to participate. So that citizenship is, is cut from you. It's taken away from you. But they didn't take this passively. They exercised their agency to forcibly uh, exercise their human right of being part of the city and being part of the infrastructure. And And the infrastructure here goes from Internet access, and it's important to remember that in Brazil we have an Internet law that considers access to information the internet a human rights as a citizen right does they 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 do everything possible to be part of that infrastructure the same way that they engage with their everyday uh processes of repair and maintenance so they can be part of the other infrastructures like water and, and electricity
0: so <clears throat> why don't you um give us a little a uh, little bit of the landscape of the kinds of technology that one might encounter um because you know it's you know, like internet, I mean, how, how, how might they access the internet? You know, what, what are the kind of like materials? What are the sites? What are the places that, um, you know, if we were in the favelas somewhere um, that, that we might encounter and be faced with the kind of technologies that we're familiar with and unfamiliar with?
1: Yes. So in the book, I call these technologies, the mundane technologies. The reason I do this is because I focus on the everyday technologies that are most, more likely to make an impact in somebody's lives. So I drive away from these talks about innovations and how, like, new innovations can save the life of the poor. These are uh, these are myths. They don't work. They've been around in, in computer science and even in ICT for D, in ICT for development. But these are technological deterministic approaches to understanding technology in society, especially when it comes to marginalized communities. So I do focus on this everyday technology like uh, Facebook a selfie, a a light bulb, uh, you know, uh, mobile phones, to kind of understand how they appropriate these technologies who were not designed for them. And as they struggle to overcome these limitations that are set by design, see how they make those technologies work for them to help them achieve the life that they desire. So, for example... Uh, the keyboard, the keyboard is a great example of how they struggle with it. Uh, they hated the, the QWERTY layout. The QWERTY layout does not make any sense to any of us. It does in the West and uh, the North because it, it it was translated from typewriters. So it's on, in computers because of historical reasons and because we're, we're used to that layout. Because keys and computers no longer get jammed the same way that they did. Uh, And and typewriters. However, in places like the favelas where I did my work, typewriters were never part of their reality. So they never really understood why the QWERTY layout, you know, why all of a sudden we have this magical compute in front of us with this weird layout that we can't understand. And uh, just like us, they are used to have things organized, you know, in alphabetical order or, you know, the numbers from one to zero uh, following that sort of Descendant, uh, ups, um, descendant order. Anyways, so the query layout was also a, uh, a struggle for them because the computers that they were using belonged to computer centers like the CTCs, the Community uh, Technology Centers. Uh, they didn't have computers at home. So they these these uh, computers and um, keyboards, they were overused. So the keys uh, sorry, so the, the uh, ink on each key would fade away constantly. And because they, they weren't aware of, of, of the layout, they didn't memorize where the keys were, then it was very hard for them to guess where each letter was. And that would frustrate them and get in the way of them learning how to use a computer and appropriating the, the computer uh, as a whole. So one day I had a, a focus group that we uh, decided to break the, the, the laptop. Sorry, and, and, and the keyboard. We wanted to um, break the the laptop, the keyboard in pieces and, and asked them to design the, lay, the layout that they wanted. Which keyboard would be most efficient to you? And to my surprise, at the end of the focus group, they came up with a, a keyboard on the, in the following an alphabetical order layout. And I thought that was interesting um, as, in, as we know in the literature, uh, you know, alphabetical layouts are known not to be efficient, but be, for, you know, not efficient for Western um, um, expectations. But for, for the context of favelas where they needed the, to know where the keys were so they had a better chance to guess where the keys were once they, the ink faded away, that was crucial. That was, that's what meant efficiency for them. So, for example, if the if the key uh, uh, D would fade away, they would know it would be right between C and E. So they had a better guess to to to, um, to guess what the key was.
0: So efficiency. I mean, I mean that's, I mean, you know, that's an interesting point there. That I, you know, we would be so quick to kind of say, oh, you know, why would one want that kind of keyboard? Like, you know, for maybe me, maybe you, that might not be an efficient keyboard layout, but efficient in that sense has to do with all of our cultural background assumptions of efficient being about some abstract person, um, rather than the efficient in the efficient sense being the inclusion of an entire group of people who otherwise couldn't use a keyboard. So the efficiency, I mean, the comparison is, you know, like an efficiency of zero
1: essentially of, um, turning away from. Exactly, uh, in the favelas, they were not interested in, in typing things faster. You know, they weren't interested in gaining one second. You know, when typing, they were interested in learning the computer and making sure that computers were somehow uh, uh, following their epstein, their way of knowing. And the qwerty layout was certainly not following the, the ways that they they were used to see the world. Not that not um, that was not the way that they organized their Uh, you know epistemology so the the alphabetical order layout made perfect sense for them
0: so what so thinking about the keyboard i mean i'm I'm kind of curious you know they're not typing for efficiency right i mean i i'm imagining in this case they're not computers were not maybe a central of of the workplace it sounds like they were Possibly a center of social life, a center of political life. Possibly, you know, what what are the kinds of things that that one would encounter uh, at these sort of internet? Uh, I'm, I'm imagining internet cafe kind of
1: uh, kind of setup. Sorry, Austin, you're breaking up a little bit. I didn't really hear the the question.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, what what were the kinds of activities that um, people in the favelas were were going to these. I'm imagining like internet cafe style kind of locations because it wasn't for work presumably maybe but uh, I'm imagining more some social or political kind of activities that were the draw for these cafes.
1: Uh, it was for everything. So it was uh, the CTCs were such a vital community space for the favelas that they they that's where they did their homework. That's where they typed their CVs. That's where they host birthday parties. That's where they had graduate, uh, you know, parties as well. That's where the mailman would drop, you know, a bulk of mail and count on on each other to help him distribute the mail across the the community. It was a vital uh, space for uh, the community. And one example, one one story that I bring in the book is how uh, these centers became a safe space for Favela residents. Unfortunately, the armed conflict was a constant and a reality in those spaces. Uh, the police and, and drug cartel gangs would fight constantly there. There were shootouts. And people found shelter in those spaces because there was this sort of agreement in the community that uh, land houses and telecenters were neutral zones where the cartels would never go in there to create any trouble. Or, you know, they would aim and shoot, you know, at the these the centers. So the same way that the local church, the local business, and the local schools were considered these sort of uh, neutral zones, so were those computer centers. Um, the, the mothers from the favelas, who most of them worked as domestic workers, they couldn't afford babysitters or they couldn't really organize themselves to find a way to have their kids being watched by an adult. And it was very uh, difficult and risky to leave their kids unattended on the streets playing soccer, for example, because the cartel was uh, constantly recruiting new people to join them. And, of course, the mothers in one So they left their kids inside of the land house or the telecenter because they knew that they would be safe there. Uh, you know, the land houses are like cyber cafes where you pay uh, by the hour. Uh, it was locally owned. So the mom would, you know, if if they would leave the kid in the the land house, they would give a little bit of money so they could use, the kids could use the computer for an hour or so. But in the Talos Center, which was free, uh, it was sponsored by the city, then um, they could stay there, play in the waiting room, and then go in the computer and, and, you know, play for as as long as they wanted. So the waiting room, as you can imagine, uh, was as active as the place where the computers were. Um, you know, that's where kids played uh, all kinds of games. Uh, that's where community members would get together to update each other on, on what was happening. Um, that's where they, you know, created new relationships as well. So overall, these um, community technology centers were um, a vital part of the favelas.
0: So on the one hand, I'm hearing, you know, this was kind of a site of <clears throat> almost a kind of community. Um, you know, democracy, kind of, you know, local networks that that are in some ways, you know, something that we might be missing in other parts of the world. I'm I'm curious now to maybe switch to hear a bit more about the structural violence component of it. I mean, you know, we've heard a little bit about the keyboard <clears throat> and how incoming ideas of what the keyboard is by maybe market effects, by ignorance, by just kind of a lack of concern. Um, but you know, what what other examples might you have um, to to illustrate? the kinds of violence that, that come about by the import of technology.
1: Yes. Uh, so the cartels, um, right when I was doing this field work, uh, it was a critical moment because Brazil was uh, getting ready to host the Olympics and the world cup. So 2014 and 2016. So uh, the government decided to engage in this social cleansing, uh, which was disguised as uh, pacification. Uh, which meant that they went to to the favelas in Rio and Sao Paulo, for example, um, trying to arrest as many drug lords or people uh, associated with the cartels over there. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people got killed. It wasn't a a peaceful event at all. It was actually very deadly. And some cartel members managed to run away, and they came to Vitoria because of the proximity, uh, and they put themselves... um, at war with the already established cartels over there. And of course, once the the, the the gangs are in a war, then the police gets involved. And When the police gets involved in these situations, it's never good either. So it amplifies even more the violence. So because of that, then the local cartels were using Facebook to watch every community member uh, that uh, was online. They wanted to know if they were giving out any sort of information, uh, or um, they were giving, you know, uh, tips or or ways that other people could break into the into the to their territory. So there was never good. And a way to respond to that surveillance, the the local residents uh, appropriated Facebook, for example, and selfies. In completely different ways that us that live in a comfort area uh, would do. For example, uh, they rarely posted on their timelines. They posted, you know, they never uh, decided to do anything that the cartels members that were watching them online could see because they feared the retaliation. Um, so most of their online uh, interactions happen on Facebook Messenger, right uh, through chat. Because they knew exactly how uh, who was um, who, know the audience who was reading their information. So they didn't really engage with the settings of Facebook to manage their um, their um, privacy, but they did it in a in a very different way, which was uh, sending messages directly to those who they could trust. Um, so that really compromised. I mean, it's, it's not the best way, but it's a way to, to, to protect themselves. But that truly compromised, for example, the, their ability of creating new content, for example, um, and, and, and get some of that digital literacy. Um, another way that they found to overcome that barrier was to post selfies. So selfies was a way to deliver a specific message to an intended audience and those who are outside that intended audience will get a completely different um, message. For It's about saying a lot with hiding a bit. And one example of that was when I was in, in the land house and there was a shootout happening outside. And after it, uh, a woman came in crying and she was, you know, very frustrated with the living situation of her uh, community. So she posted a photo of herself crying, a selfie. And... She wanted to show, you know, her frustration to her friends and family members that didn't live in the community. And then five minutes later, 15 minutes minutes later, a member of the cartel was uh, outside and like trying to figure out if if that, you know, that woman was actually the one that she was seeing on the selfie on the Facebook. And he he called her out and, and she came out and talked to him and she came back like rolling her eyes. And I asked her what happened. Just said, oh, did you see that? He wanted to know if uh, I was crying because of of what was happening here and saying that if I'm not happy here, I could leave the community. Uh, And then I said, wow, that's, that's awful. So what did you say? And he said, well, I just said that I had a fight with my boyfriend and he believed it. So it was a way, again, to deliver the right message to the right people but disguise that message with a secondary uh, uh, meaning to those who are outside. So these are the tech, uh, mundane technologies of their everyday lives that you know, they appropriated to uh, help them uh, given the life situation that they uh, thought themselves in. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs
0: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder
1: made possible. Learn more at EverNorth.com Wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas, you've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I love the way you described this in the book. Um, You know, selfies were a way for favela residents to reflect on themselves. You know, The CTC were these places that were friendly places where favela residents felt it was easier to disclose their true feelings and their deepest thoughts, which is just a highlights the kind of dual use aspect of these technologies in a way that we don't really encounter, I think, um, in other places like the, the extent to which one is having the cartels sort of monitor their Facebook while at the same time you have this kind of meta reflective element of of almost mean the kind of escapism in some sense, right? I mean the kind of like you know you give an example of um, the person who wanted to play soccer outside, but they we, you know, but they can't because um, of, of how dangerous it might be. So they kind of escape to this Facebook Messenger place, you know, this kind of social place that's on the one hand monitored um, by these kind of you know cartels or community n- norms in some sense, but are also their their sort of spaces and and it's interesting to kind of reflect on this is on the one hand, a kind of violence, um, that's coming from the outside, but at the same time, a kind of liberating force. I mean, how, how do you, how are you thinking about this sort of competing, competing thing going on?
1: Yes. So this is exactly how I try to paint these uses of technology in the book. So I paint, you know, technology as a site of struggle. It's this winning and losing liberating and being oppressed. And it's an ongoing process that they have to uh, grapple with to survive, basically. So, you know, this idea that technology will save us from every evil, it's a very naive and and, uh, deterministic way of thinking of technology. Maybe this, this kind of thinking belongs to Silicon Valley, but not in, let's say, real life. Like, this is the spaces where technology will actually have an impact. You know, not in, in you know the you know the Silicon Valley's in these bubbles where these technologies were developed to work at. Um, so yeah, so this is exactly it. it, it I I try to paint uh, and show how technology is rather a, a a site of struggle where they where the people have to be resilient and resist and engage and appropriate uh, instead of having this technology that is given to them and then they can you know eventually. Uh, take the the advantages of that and the benefits of that. This is what sets them back a little bit because uh, for people like us, we we use technologies and from day one, we can enjoy it, right? We can use in ways that would somehow help us get to where we want to go. For those in the favelas, using technology means that they will be set back a couple of steps and that will uh, require effort, mental health, and resilient and resistance so they can get to a stage so they can finally walk forward and try to catch up. That's why it's a a very unfair race because those who are in privileged spaces are already 10 steps ahead when these people are still trying to get to ground zero to finally um, get to move forward. This is what I try to show in the book, And, and the way that I conclude the book is to say, well... You know, these stories are inspiring and, and beautiful, but we need to be careful because we should not promote this sort of fetish around people's resilience and resistance, because that actually set them back. I mean, why do they have to be resilient? Why do they have to resist? Why can't technology work for them from day one? And the way to do this is to actually instead of uh, expect them to appropriate these technologies through resistance and resilience, maybe we should bring those people up to where the decisions are being taken place uh, in terms of technological developments. So that way, instead of thinking, uh, because this is the only way that we can think technology, leaving the side of, of, of the oppressor to maybe bring a little bit of hope to these people.
0: Yeah, I mean, what comes to mind there is uh, this sort of you know hack labs that are very very common now in America or in, in you know very very rich places. I mean, even even I don't have I think the, as a graduate student I don't even have the money for these kind of hack lab things. But um, um, you know, bringing these kinds of sites back to um, back to the real places, like where hey, let's make a keyboard or you know let's let's make this communication network work for us. Um, Versus it being done by Facebook, being done by WhatsApp, um, where it's not designed at all for them in mind on the one hand. But as you said, because society and the political sphere is moving along at such a rapid pace, they have no choice but to be resilient but to resist. I mean, otherwise they'll be completely forgotten in this way. And and I really like the comment about... um, You know, wh- why do they have to be resilient? You know, we look at resilience as this kind of, you know, triumphant, um, hard work, perseverance, which are, you know, wonderful personality traits for, for a hero's journey, I suppose. But, you know, it, it seems a little um, suspicious if we require um, some people to have hero's journeys in the world and others to, to not.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of a neoliberal way of thinking, right? That you can do everything you want as long as you try hard, right? That that notion of meritocracy, which is a, a myth again. It, it's not like that in the real world at all. Uh, these people have all the merits to prevail in life, but why aren't they prevailing in ways that they can compete with those who have been in privileged spaces? You know, why can uh, technology actually provide these comfort spaces for them, so they can actually prevail. It's not like in the book. I talk about the little strolls, the jalazinos, where um, you know the, the famazinos or the famous teenagers were thing in 2013, and they truly appropriated technologies to create content, to create YouTube videos. You know, they did the most beautiful and creative uh, works of remixes out there in the country. And they became famous uh, in their communities. Like, they gained fans. Fans wanted to hang out with them. Uh, I talk about João in the book where he would, you know, uh, set up hangout times in the local square so people could meet him and hang out with them. He got so popular that eventually he uh, scheduled uh, his uh, hangout at the shopping mall called Shopping Vitoria, which was a, a, a space for the rich and white. But when he gets there, you know, he's very empowered. You know, he, got, he felt empowered by technology because he was able to conquer that piece of technology to make that work for him. And he, he felt famous, empowered. But when he got there, he really faced all kinds of social prejudice because he was black and poor. And then he, he asked me, you know, why am I being treated this way? Is it because I'm poor and black? Unfortunately, the answer is Yes. And this shows that how little technology can do for these people because technology was not designed to fight racism and classism that he faced in a space that wasn't meant for him. So up to the, you know, what is the extent we can expect empowerment to come from technology? For him, sure, it promoted digital literacy. He was able to, uh, you know, be self-taught and create the most amazing content out there. But when it comes to breaking social uh, prejudice like racism and classism, technology didn 't do quite a, a thing. actually, it masked the danger of going to those places and actually uh, um, expose him to all kinds of, of social violences uh, wh- although he, he considered his uh, hangout at a mall a failure because of the prejudice that he got. Actually, this, this can be seen as you know, a small step towards resisting the social norms and the social uh, hierarchy in, in Victoria. And hopefully, uh, by going back and be uh, um, daring, you know, they can normalize their presence in those spaces, which are their right, because it's a public space. However... They have to face this violence, and this is what I keep saying. Why do they have to engage, you know, be uh, exposed to violence, exposed to resistance, exposed to resilience? Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's quite a structure that we're living under, and um, we have, they have to live with it, unfortunately. Uh, and maybe thinking of technologies that could maybe help that, maybe can help actually uh, promote a more equal society.
0: Right. That's, I mean, I think that's, you know, a wonderful way of looking at it the way that, um, you know, I think at least the literature and ICT for development, you know, there's this kind of fetish of digital literacy as as really being uh, undercovering the kind of mobility that, you know, ex- ex- outsiders are praising. Like, oh, look at this kind of social mobility in some sense, like, look at how successful it is. But in reality, that that might not have been a problem. Or I mean, it was made a problem by technology for them. But that's not necessarily an internal cultural problem or a social problem for which they're looking to solve. Um, but it's been thrown on them. I'm I'm curious to hear. I mean, where what's sort of next in this project for you? Um, you know, you you just finished up this wonderful book. It was published this year. Um, what what are you working on next? Where where's your research heading?
1: Yeah, so this research, uh, like I said, it took me. Uh, it's a ten year project, right? And this research specifically took me to understanding the dynamics of misinformation in Brazil. Uh, and in book, in chapter six, for example, I talk about the how favela residents were able to participate in social movements. Right? It was not ideal because the information about the social movements came in very late. But they decided to take part. And then since 2013, Brazil has somehow been going out to the streets more often, uh, motivated by what happened in 2013. However, the, the social movements in 2014 and 15 were very much different from those that happened in 2013. 2013, we had the right and the left all marching together, asking for a better country. In 2014 and 15, we saw a rise of far-right groups that were appropriating misinformation and creating misinformation to uh, kind of skew that sense of social change from Brazil to bring it to their own agenda, which was to promote um, neoliberal governments, uh, neoliberal policies, which eventually led to to the election of Bolsonaro who's a far-right president right now. Uh, And to do that, they had to engage with all kinds of disinformation campaigns. So as I was following these social movements since 2013, I saw very different things happen in 2013 and 14, 15, and so on. From 14 to 15, I saw a lot of misinformation. I wanted to know how this misinformation uh, was being organized, orchestrated, created, and distributed and consumed. Uh, Brazil misinformation did not take place on Facebook mainly, but mainly on WhatsApp. And WhatsApp is, for those who don't know, it's a messaging app that requires uh, deliberate human action for you to receive uh, information. Um, So for you to get misinformation, you had to have somebody sending that to you. There's no algorithm to curate and distribute that information uh, like we have on um, Facebook. So because of that, I started to look into the human infrastructure of misinformation that was behaving just like in, an algorithm to distribute and curate this misinformation to get into people's pockets. And from that, um, that research is actually in the book. It's in the seventh book, uh, seventh chapter, which is called Technology of the Oppressor. So I spend the book talking about technology of the oppressed. And the, the, the second to last chapter is Technology of the Oppressor. Because, as Paulo Freire said, for us to understand oppression, we we'll need to look into what happens with the oppressed and also to what happens with the oppressor. Um, so the next project will be related to that, um, but I'm I i do not know for sure where this is going to take me because um, right now I'm looking into this is election year, so Bolsonaro will try re-election, so I'm still researching and see what would be the new tactics, the new ways of promoting misinformation so he can get reelected or, you know, attempt to be reelected. So this is where I'm going with this research project right now. Um, So yeah, more to come soon, I hope.
0: I I hope so too. Well, it was absolutely wonderful talking to you and um, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Austin. It was a pleasure talking to you too.
0: We've been talking with David Niemer, an assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies and in the Latin Studies program at the University of Virginia, about his new book, Technology of the Oppressed, Inequality and the Digital Mundane in Favelas of Brazil. Thank you. Thank you.